Again, we are at 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'll read starting at verse 1, and then we'll go all the way through to the end of the chapter. If you would follow along, this is the most important thing we'll do in our worship service together this morning, is to open up God's word and hear directly from him in these pages. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal. Greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, with 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We didn't miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves and two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. She did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. 
Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for he, as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this present that your servant has brought to you, my Lord, be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. Evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal. Behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. (coughs) Excuse me. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. Both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Paltai, son of Laish, who was of Galilee. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's a lot to cover in one message. I'm going to give it a shot. Because what we see in the section of 1 Samuel that we're in right now is that David is facing three tests of leadership. Last week we talked about the first one, so this week we're talking about the second one. There's a lot of similarities between these two tests, but at the same time, they feel very different. They're happening with different people in different circumstances. They 
bring up a different result, and even from David, a different reaction than we saw last week. The point I wanted to make last week was that power and position are granted by God and must be used according to his will, according to his ways. This week, we ought to consider that power and position, that is, our ability and our opportunity to act, are granted by God to act in wisdom and self-control. Remember, David is in the wilderness, and in the Bible, the wilderness is always a picture of a place of testing, of training and learning and testing and training and learning. You can recall that many generations earlier, Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, being tested and learning, and learning how much they needed to learn, and learning how terribly they tested in the end. David is going through something of a final exam time here. The first test was recognizing the potential shortcuts and sticking to God's plan. Again, his second test today is to see that his power and his position are granted by God in order to act out in wisdom and self-control. Now, stopping right there for a second, do you see David acting in self-control in this passage? That's what we want to look for as we walk through this. If that's the test, how does he do? And after seeing how he does, we need to also, of course, take that next step, otherwise it's not a sermon, and ask ourselves, how are we doing in walking in wisdom and in walking in self-control? There's an outline in the bulletin if that's a helpful thing to you. We're going to take these first 13 verses under the heading of foolishness is contagious, don't catch it. Sometimes you read the Bible and you come across a verse that doesn't really seem to fit. Your Bibles, if you have the ESV especially, but other translations might do this as well, where they put little paragraph headings, and you might see on, above verse 1, the death of Samuel. Covers one verse. And then we move to David and Abigail, which is seemingly disconnected, right? Look again at verse 1, if you will. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. We could write this off as just a simple marker in the timeline, okay? So this could be a point where we say, all of this that happens after is after the lifetime of Samuel. But I just don't think, not that it matters what I think, it matters what's actually happening here. Scriptural writers don't always just put things in as time markers. Often these things carry some greater weight in the story that's coming after them. I mean, Samuel's death here feels kind of out of place. We don't get a story of David at the funeral or anything like that. But it might give us some insight into David's kind of surprising behavior. Samuel, of course, was David's spiritual mentor. Both David and Saul relied on Samuel for wisdom and direction. And now Samuel's dead. David isn't able to escape to Ramah and find the wisdom of his spiritual mentor. Ironically enough, in a couple chapters, we'll see how Saul, in a very weird way, is actually able to talk to Samuel again. But for David right now, let's realize that he's in a place, it seems the author wants us to know, that the death of Samuel influences David's decisions. That it's not just a passing thing that he read in the newspaper. Oh, look at that. Samuel finally kicked the bucket. No, Samuel was his mentor. It was someone he would have looked to, and now he is gone. 
So we need to consider that as we think about David's next move. So David heads to Paran. He learns about a very wealthy man named Nabal. And the story picks up in shearing season. This is kind of like harvest. Okay, so the sheep are being sheared, everything. All the, all the prophets and all the hopes and dreams of the past season of farming are now coming to fruition. Nabal's a very rich man, and he seems to be having a very good year. Now, David is not the local mafia here, okay, when he comes with his request. He's not saying, hey, we did protection for you, and now it's time to pay up. That's not what he's coming at. I don't know why I did that. I'm sorry. Such a dork. Can we start over? Anyway. The point I'm trying to get at is that David is not coming forcefully at Nabal saying, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. You need to pay up right now. If you look at his words in coming to Nabal, (coughs) he very clearly says to his messengers to say, peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace be all that you have. Peace, 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 peace. I'm not coming here in a threatening way. His message is simple in verse 8. Let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please, give whatever you have at hand to your servants and your son David. Now, again, David could have sent an invoice to Nabal and said, here's all the times I sent my men out to protect you and your sheep and your men and all those things. It comes out to X amount of dollars an hour, etc., etc. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't actually appeal to Nabal to pay what is owed exactly, so much as he says, give whatever you have at hand. This kind of language is hearkening to just Old Testament hospitality, okay? So you might think of a parable that Jesus gives later on in the New Testament about a man who has a visitor late at night and he has no bread for him and he he rushes over to his neighbor's house and he says, I have a visitor and I have no bread. Hospitality wasn't just a thing for certain people. It was for the whole community. Hospitality was a communal value. And so all David is doing here is just asking, hey, whatever you have at hand, whatever you have to spare for my men, they've worked pretty hard. They kind of deserve this, but please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and your son David. He's not demanding anything. He's just appealing to sensible payment and contemporary hospitality. Now, we saw what we learned about Nabal right off the bat, right? Nabal was harsh and badly behaved. Now, his name, this is one of those points again. Sometimes people in the Old Testament are named after the most terrible things. If you remember in the book of Ruth, um, Ruth and her sister-in-law married two men whose names were weak and sickly. Malon and Chilion. I mean, it's just, it's a little bit ironic, and you wonder, are these nicknames? But Nabal's name comes from the word for folly or foolishness. His name basically means, I'm a fool. And so as David asks a fool for payment, he gets a fool's response. Look with me, if you would, at verse 10. As Nabal receives David's messengers... He responds with, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. He's basically saying, isn't David just one of Saul's slaves? Isn't he supposed to be serving Saul? Now you can see this is a very political statement that is being made here. Because Saul is the actual king right now. David is the coming king. He's the one who is the rightful next king. But Saul is still holding the office. And Nabal makes very clear what he thinks about this son of Jesse. 
who do you think you are? You're a slave. What are you doing out here bossing other people around and, and telling me I owe you stuff? Verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? He said that David has no legitimate position. He's basically just a slave. And Nabal doesn't owe anything to the son of Jesse. If David has helped him out, that's his own loss. That's Nabal's mindset. And this is where we need to understand what a biblical fool is. Now today we think of a fool as somebody who makes the dumbest decision or the dumbest choice whenever they have the chance. They act goofy. They miss the point. They don't have any wisdom. They don't prosper. All those kinds of things. But in the biblical sense of a fool, we're not just talking about someone who makes dumb choices, although obviously Nabal is doing that. The Bible defines foolishness as wicked, self-absorbed, and godless living. You might recall in the Psalms that the psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's not just an atheistic statement, although it certainly is. More than that, it's a life mantra. If I say it enough times, I'm going to believe it, and I can very easily act as though there is no God to hold me accountable. And just as David did not come with a receipt or with any other threat or anything here, I don't think I owe anything to anyone here, Nabal says. This is what the Bible describes as a fool. Seeing the good work of the Lord in their lives and counting themselves as the hero of their own story. Look again in verse 10 of the repetition of that first-person word here where he says in verse 10, my bread, my water, my meat, my shearers. Nabal is completely self-absorbed. Not like anyone you know, I'm sure, right? So David decides, okay, this is how Nabal's going to respond with this kind of foolishness and self-absorption, what should I do? What would you do in this instance? Perhaps you might say, maybe, maybe I should go to him and just say, hey, Nabal, maybe there's a misunderstanding. No, he says, I'm going to kill all of them. This is where, when we ask the question of how David is doing with this next test in the wilderness, we have to say, it doesn't sound like what we learned last week, does it? Again, it sounds a lot like last week. There's a test. There's, there's a, a matter of someone doing wrong to David, and how is he going to respond? Last week, he ripped off a piece of Saul's robe and said, I'm going to use this as a picture to him of my good intentions to him. And then he comes to Nabal, and Nabal basically says, no, I'm not giving you any food. And David says, I'm going to kill you. He goes mafia on him at that point then, right? David decides the only course of action is violence. And this is where we see, church, that foolishness is contagious. <clears throat> That's not to say that my sin problem can be excused because it was simply prompted by what somebody else did. Rather, being around fools can spark our own foolishness. That is to say, when you're trying to start a fire and you need to spark that first flame, the resources are already there. What Nabal does is not just say, he doesn't cough on David and say, well, now you've got the foolishness, you're a Nabal too. But rather, Nabal's actions ignite what is already in David's heart. 
And he doesn't filter his actions through self-control. We talk about having a filter when we are in a conversation. That is to say that our filter helps us think about what we're going to say before we say it, right? This is what James would call in the New Testament being slow to speak. Probably my biggest problem in my life. I don't know about you. Having a filter. David doesn't use the self-control filter in his response. In fact, most strictly what he's not doing is responding as he is reacting you know, to react is to have your gut initial thought and feelings and action come out instead of a response that can be a slower, thought-out response rather than a reaction. Here, David has left his leadership filter behind. And he's reacting to foolishness with more foolishness. So we find David in a moment of decision like we did last week, Right? Only last week where we saw that he had cut Saul's robe and then after he did that, immediately his heart struck him. Now it seems like his heart isn't speaking up at all. Now it seems like he's just simply ready to react. I don't know if this is a struggle for you. I imagine it probably is. I think it's part of the human experience, isn't it? The matter of reacting and responding. The matter of of the filter of self-control on our words, thoughts, and deeds. The ball is full of folly. He's a fool, and he's brought out the foolishness of David. Can you remember the last time we saw the term fool in 1 Samuel? It was a while ago. In fact, 10 chapters, way back to chapter 15, which is a pivotal chapter. If you remember, this is where Samuel reveals to Saul he will no longer be the king. God is tearing the kingdom from him. And Nabal, the fool, then becomes a sort of picture of what Samuel says to Saul. He says, you have acted foolishly. And really, foolishness then kind of encompasses the rest of Saul's life particularly in relation to David. We would say, you are foolish, you're self-absorbed because you're just chasing this guy through the wilderness when you're supposed to be leading a kingdom, Saul. What is wrong with you? And David might think after chapter 24, okay, I've passed the test. I didn't put my hand to harm the Lord's anointed. I've acknowledged that God has placed him where he is and I'm trusting God to bring justice. He hasn't brought it yet, but I'm still trusting him for it. But then when it comes to Nabal, who is another fool in David's life, David says, I don't know about trusting the Lord on this one. I think I'm just going to take this into my own hands. I think I'm going to do what I want to do here. And that's ultimately where self-control is so desperately needed. Because when we don't have self-control, all we have is self-liberation. All we have is the idea that my need is to express and to pour out whatever is in my heart. What's going on here for David is what smart biblical scholars call a narrative analogy. That is that they're comparing two things for explanation and clarity. And in David's own life, running into Nabal after this is God's way of showing David, his lack of self-control. In one sense, perhaps, it is God's response to to David coming out of his victory against Saul, in one sense, you know, his victory of over-temptation to kill Saul or to to, um, defame him even more. 
God is saying there's still the matter of self-control in your heart, David. You need to deal with this. And that's where Nabal comes in, of course. God is clarifying this issue for him. Church, let's realize that there are no small tests when it comes to dealing with our sin and growing more like Christ. I think it would have been very easy for David to think this test with Nabal is a small test. And if I fail it, it's not going to affect my overall grade that much. If I just kill Nabal and all of his servants, it wouldn't be anything like reaching out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Abigail's going to come in and help him realize that that's not the case. But it's important for us at this point to recognize that the way we respond perhaps to our boss or a superior in the middle of a conflict, and the way we might respond to our kids or maybe a subordinate, are both moments that the Lord intends to grow us. And we ought not act inconsistently just because of the one that we're dealing with. Foolishness is contagious. Don't catch it. Let's look at verses 14 through 35. The wise leader listens to wise counsel, so receive it. Go back to verse 3, if you would. I know we said we're looking at verse 14 here, but back up to verse 3, because we skipped over Abigail's wonderful introduction. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. You kind of wonder, how did these two people get matched up, right? You've got beautiful and discerning and harsh and badly behaved. Abigail is Nabal's wife, perhaps, and most likely, not to her preference. She is the polar opposite of Nabal. She is everything that Nabal seems to be the opposite of. Verse 14, then, starts with a wise servant going to Abigail, knowing that she is discerning, that is, that she is wise, that she has knowledge, that she'll know what to do about Nabal's foolishness. And, of course, she does. I mean, the report to Abigail is basically, Nabal is being Nabal. And you can imagine Abigail in this moment rolling her eyes and going, I am not at all surprised. Notice the extent of Nabal's foolishness in verse 17. The servant says, he's such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. I mean, this almost sounds like maybe what some, just say it, this could seem like something that some wives may say about their husbands, right? This was the servant saying it, though. Abigail never says anything negative about her husband. You could argue that when she says when she says that as his name is, so is he. But she's very respectful, both of David and of her husband, even her husband, the fool. She thinks and acts quickly, which is a funny contrast because David is thinking and acting quickly here and he makes the wrong decision. He acts in foolishness. But Abigail thinks and acts quickly. She prepares what she can. She catches up with David and she begs him to reconsider. And her argument is airtight. Abigail provides the wise counsel that David might have expected from someone like Samuel. So isn't it interesting? When we go back to verse 1 again, Samuel has died. His influence in David's life is over. But that's not to say that God's influence in David's life is over. Because here he is speaking through Abigail. Let's look at her speech. Um, Let's read it again, actually, from verse 26. If you would follow along with me once more, please. Listen to what Abigail says here. This is starting in the middle, but now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, 
because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. For my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. In verse 26, Abigail points out that her presence in intercepting David was the, way, the Lord's way of restraining David from acting out in wickedness, from acting foolishly. Her presence saved David from blood guilt. David confirms this later on too. He says, if you wouldn't have come, I would have killed all of them and probably shortly after would have realized the blood on my hands was not mine to shed. This is an astounding thing that Abigail has done for David. Of course, it's wonderful for Nabal, too, who doesn't deserve this kind of treatment. Nabal foolishly looked at the world through the lens of his own ownership and his own hand and ability. But it was the Lord's hand who restrained David from acting in the same way. See, self-control is not something that we invent on our own. What is it, church, in the New Testament? How do we categorize self-control? Where does it come from? It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? A fruit of the Spirit. If we talk about a fruit that comes from a tree, we're not saying that the farmer was ultimately the one who created the, the fruit, right? No, we're saying that the fruit of the Spirit is what comes from the Spirit's presence in your life. It is the Lord's restraining that we need because we cannot restrain ourselves Abigail appealed to the Lord's promises and his sovereign work in David's life. That is, that God has spoken. He's given his promises. And he's always true to his word. He will fulfill everything he says. And then regarding his sovereignty, that is simply to say that there's no authority greater than God. So there's no one who can stop him from acting according to his will. <coughs> that is including our own foolishness. But then perhaps most strikingly, look at verse 31. Abigail appeals to the future king to consider his conscience. And this is something that we bypass. And I want us to catch this and apply this today because what Abigail says is you could get to a point where you go from the day that you kill Nabal and all his men all the way up to when you sit on the throne and you might only just then realize that you have blood on your hands, that you have wronged others and that you have acted aside from God's will. See, this... This term hand we've seen for the last few chapters, right? We've seen it a lot. And the warning that Abigail gives is not to take things into your own hands, but to leave them to the sovereign lead of the Lord. And church, it's a danger for us if we're not relying on the Lord's self-control in our lives. It's a danger for us because we might incur, incur guilt and we might even bring our consciences to a place where we don't recognize it until 
maybe it's too late. And so there's nothing that can be done. The Lord used Abigail to pull the reins back on David's rampage. And if he will submit to the Lord's wisdom, he can look forward to a future where he won't regret the actions he takes today. Well, David is, of course, just as impressed as we are with Abigail's wisdom. And that's a shining moment for David, too. This is where he kind of stops looking like Saul, the one who would go around and destroy an entire city just because he doesn't like them. And instead, he starts to look like David. He starts to look like the one the Lord has chosen according to the Lord's design, who is working on this heart and changing him and actually bringing him to a place where when he hears wisdom, he responds to it. Even if it's from, in this context, a woman who historically and culturally, they would say, what, who are you? why are you talking to me, right? David listens to Abigail's wisdom. So church, are you able to see the wisdom of God when he puts it in front of you? When he speaks through a surprising voice in your life. How about your kids? Have you ever been corrected by your kids before? That's humiliating, isn't it? It's happened more times I'd like to than I'd like to admit. And yet, is that not also the Lord's way of correcting us? Of reigniting not the aggression and foolishness in our hearts, but the self-control that he's placed there by his spirit. The wise leader listens to wise counsel, and David proves that. So are you looking for wisdom in his word each day? Are you looking for it in the fellowship of other believers? Because we together are walking this walk of faith, pursuing self-control for the sake of God's kingdom. Are we, are we working? Are we willing to, I'm not saying like every person you talk to, you're like, hey, how's it going? How's your Sunday going? It's terrible. Let me unpack all the horrors and tragedies of my life so that you can speak into them not saying take that approach necessarily but do you have a close circle of friends of brothers and sisters with whom you can confide and with whom you might receive wisdom from God because if you don't you're missing out you're missing out on something that David himself the man after God's own heart as we call him clearly needed Proverbs 25 28 says a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls it's a vivid picture, isn't it? <clears throat> Church, our problem is that we swim in an ocean of self-liberation. We want those walls taken down. We want to remove boundaries in our lives. That's the culture's cure for whatever ails us. And you might say, well, that's not my problem because I'm a Christian. But we can't act as though our life is untouched by this philosophy. 2023 logic would say that David just needed to let loose that desire in his angry heart he could find what he needed. Maybe after he kills Nabal and all those men, maybe then he'll feel satisfied and his anger will be at rest. This isn't a cultural phenomenon. It's a rebellion against God. It is an expression, to use Abigail's words, of working salvation by our own hands, even if our hands get bloody in the process. Hear from the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That is, God brings that salvation by his grace. And that salvation, he says in verse 12, is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all our lawlessness, or we could say all of our foolishness, 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I know there's a lot in there, but take just a couple of these things. First of all, by grace, the undeserved gift of God. He's brought salvation for all people by grace. Abigail is in one sense an expression of that grace to David, is she not? Paul says that the grace of salvation trains us to live self-controlled lives, just like we see in David's test here. Just as David needed to be reminded of his blessed hope that God would fulfill his promises, that God is in control, so must we be reminded of those promises. Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect, self-controlled life, brought us salvation. And he brought it not by going and just slaughtering all of his enemies, but laying his life down on the cross. Dying in the place of those who would let anger lead them to foolishness. He gave himself to redeem us from this way of living. To make us his own. And as Paul says, to put a zeal in our hearts for good works. That is, that David is no longer zealous to just totally wipe out Nabal and all of his men. He is now zealous to say, Lord, you are the perfect judge. You will make all things right. I'm more excited about trusting you in that than making my own way. Christ has won salvation by his own hand for us. And it is by his power in us that we can live self-controlled lives and that we not only can or are able, but we must live self-controlled lives. Self-control could mean saying no to pizza slice number five or to an outburst of aggression against someone who's wronged us. But only through Christ will we find victory in dealing with the foolishness that's in us and around us and walk in self-control. When will you need to practice self-control this week, church? Will you take that moment to slow down and pray that the Spirit of God in you will teach you self-control? Remember, Abigail cut David off. Our lives are so busy, and that's why it's so easy to neglect self-control and to just act out of our own reactions, of our own sinful foolishness, of all those things, because sometimes there's nothing to stop us. We just keep rolling and going and going and going and going. Are you willing to stop for a second to listen for the voice of God in your decision-making and in your actions and receive the self-control of Christ? The self-control that's willing to say, God is in charge and I will trust him and I will be excited or zealous for the good works that he has for me, not the ones I would come up on my own. He will deal with the things that are not yours to deal with. Our last section, verses 36 through 44, if that's true, that he will deal with them, then the Lord is the one who will lead us justly. And we must follow him in self-control. We need to see the rest of the story, right? Nabal seemed pretty proud of himself, so he threw a party. It says a party that was worthy of a king. He was acting like he was the king, which again is a funny parallel to Saul, right? He throws a party. He ends up a drunk mess, speaking of self-control. And he wakes up the next morning to find out that David had been paid for his work and his own life had been ransomed by his wife's wisdom. Now, what happens in verse 37 seems like either a heart attack or a stroke. It's not entirely clear, but the point is that it was from the Lord. God's making it very clear. David, you're not the one who needed to take out Nabal. I will deal with Nabal. The application of this is not to say, hey, just don't lash out at your enemies, and before you know it, they'll keel over from a stroke or a heart attack. That's not the application of this, okay? Don't take that approach, and don't wish that on anybody, please, either. These things, as we've said multiple times from Paul in 1 Corinthians, these things are in Romans, I apologize. 
these things are written down for our learning. This is not a normal pattern to engage in. This is something that we can see God's promise coming into fruition. So David learned that the Lord would lead in justice and he needs to follow in self-control. Now he celebrates by marrying Nabal's wife, which is kind of a surprising thing. It's a good thing in one sense because Abigail was alone then after Nabal's death. So she's redeemed. She now has what we can presume is a good husband compared to the one that was before. But there's also this issue at the end of this chapter of David having multiple wives. Now, I don't want to preach yet another sermon on that right now, but suffice it to say that polygamy in this case, as we see in different points in Scripture, is often permitted by God, but it's not promoted by God. He's not one who says, yes, go take yet another wife, take another one, take another one. In fact, it's quite the opposite, because Samuel had warned Israel that if they wanted a king, a king would be doing these kinds of things. He'd be taking. He'd be taking another wife, taking more soldiers, taking more land. From the beginning, marriage was established as one man and one woman forever, and the kings in Israel will show later on that the fruit of their lack lack of self-control here is going to be their demise. Anyway, do you trust the Lord to lead justly? Will you follow him in self-control? There's plenty of foolishness in the world, and we have to admit in our hearts, too. We have our self-centeredness we need to reckon with. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to listen to wise counsel? Do we tune people out when they don't tell us what we want to hear? Jesus has made a way for us to walk in self-control. So is the fruit, it is the fruit of his spirit living in us, training and transforming us. In a couple moments, we'll sing our last song to the spirit of Christ in us. One of the verses says, Holy Spirit, lead me onward, walking through the great unknown, trusting, leaning, holding, clinging, till the day you lead me home.